Well, hi, folks. Welcome back to the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast and episode number 44. This is Fred Reno, your host. Before I get into the background about episode 44, I'd like to inform you that this will be the last episode in my journey to chronicle the history of modern-day wine growing in Virginia. In November of 2020, when I launched the podcast, the idea was to capture the many stories and histories of the vintners who helped pave the way for the next generation of wine growers and vintners here in Virginia. It was never my goal that this project would be commercial or to reward me monetarily. Moreover, the aspiration from the beginning was to donate these audio recordings as an oral history documentary to the University of Virginia Library for future research and historical content. I have adhered to that goal from the beginning, and I hope that you enjoyed listening and learning from the Vintners firsthand about their aspirations as I have. I would have never learned what I know today about the challenges and the victories of growing grapes and producing wine in the Old Dominion if it were not for the insights and information I gained directly from the wineries and vintners who I interviewed. I'm in the final stages of working out the details with the director of the Camp Library at the Darden School of Business on the campus of the University of Virginia. So I will be moving on. I'm not quite sure what the future of the podcast will be at this time. I will keep you posted when I decide what the next life for the Fine Wine Confidential podcast looks like. However, I was given an idea many months ago by Dr. Bruce Stockland, Professor Emeritus of Analogy at Virginia Tech, which I believe is the finest way to end his journey. I never had an opportunity to meet Dennis Horton before he passed in 2018, and since interviewing many folks for the podcast, especially Dennis's wife Sharon and his daughter Shannon, I realized the incredible contribution that Dennis had made to Virginia wine growing and how his efforts fueled so many of the folks that are prominent in today's Virginia wine industry. So I've chosen five industry personalities to share their thoughts, recollections, and a favorite story about Dennis Horton, and I put these interviews together as my closing act. I hope you'll find this episode entertaining and enlightening. The first person I interviewed was Dr. Bruce Socklin, which only seemed fitting because he knew Dennis well and was his idea in the first place. Bruce was recruited back in 1985 by Virginia Tech to move to Virginia from California, where he was teaching analogy at Fresno State University. Virginia Tech was expanding their horticultural department to include the science of winemaking, and Bruce took the position. He has since retired, although he's still very active, and his clients on the West Coast and abroad know that. He knew Dennis for many years and has some great insights into the man. Take a listen to Bruce talking about Dennis. Well, Bruce, welcome, and thank you for taking a few minutes to talk to me about Dennis Horton. First question is really obvious. How did you meet Dennis? Well, I... As the head of the Enology Grape Chemistry Group at Virginia Tech, really, I knew Dennis for over 25 years. He was uh, a friend and a client. I got to know him very well because we had a number of meetings at his winery. He was generous enough to always uh, offer 
his facility for us to uh, to have short courses, seminars, symposiums, whatever we wish to do. Dennis was an outspoken wine industry leader that really left a legacy of unwavering support for my program efforts and uh, all of us here at Virginia Tech. I'm curious, when you first met him, what were your impressions? <laughs> well, that he was um, highly interested in getting into the industry, didn't have a whole lot of background, asked a lot of questions. But as I got to know him, it was quite obvious that he was uh, a person with a great deal of passion. Not only passion, but the thing that differentiated Dennis from many was his willingness to, to share. We had an experimental vineyard where we were looking at uh, various cultivars, cultivated varieties that we thought would do well in Virginia. And I would share those at roundtables frequently, but not exclusively. Those roundtables occurred at his facility. He was always willing to plant commercial size blocks of cultivars that we thought showed promise and share those results uh, with the industry, which helped move the industry forward by a quantum leap. And as an example of his um, generosity, one day I got a call from a grape grower who was asking me about what at the time was a, a, a new variety uh, for Virginia, a really a rather obsc uh, obscure variety, Tanat. And I provided some information about that, but the grower said, well, I've never tasted a Tanat wine. Uh, I hate to plant something I've never even tasted. Where can I go? And I said, well, you could just give Dennis Horton a call, and I'm sure he'll or just go to the Horton Winery. They have Tanat. Well, about a week later, this grower called me back. And he was overjoyed because his, as I say, his consciousness was raised several feet. He had showed up at Dennis's place unannounced, uh, introduced himself, and Dennis spent the entire afternoon with this fellow tasting to not in a, in a cellar. Uh, but not only that, but shared financial records with regard to what it costs him to grow the grapes and make the wine from this variety. And I have to say, uh, generally, for a business owner to share their financial records uh, would likely cause a certain limited degree of conflict, pretty much in the same vein that the Atlantic Ocean has a certain limited degree of water. But from Dennis's perspective, uh, this was just what you do. This perspective grower was so thoroughly convinced that I had somehow conveyed to Dennis that this fellow, the grower, was some very important person deserving some special uh, attention or recognition. But I, of course, had not. Oh, my God. Amazing. Amazing it story. It is amazing. I'm curious about, you know, Dennis was responsible for bringing Norton back to Virginia did he ever talk to you about why he did that and what the story was behind that? Well, of course, he was from Missouri. Right. He knew it. Uh, I think he felt a passion. He realized, as did many of us, that in order for, 
Virginia to be put on the map, we needed to establish some sort of regional distinction. And that was always a goal. And I think that was an overarching reason why he was so willing to plant uh, commercial sized blocks of varieties where there was no guarantee of success. I mean, we might have had them in our test vineyard. In some cases, we didn't even have them in the test vineyard. He'd make an, uh, grow enough of these things so as to have enough volume to actually truly evaluate them. So I think it was his sense of uh, the viability of the grape, his roots in Virginia, and his understanding of the fact that there is no more competitive business than the wine industry. And if you want to stand out as an industry, you need to do something a little bit different. Oh, so that was behind it. Well, and that's right. He grew up in Herman, Missouri, didn't he? Yes. And Herman, Missouri is a, it's a unique place. And they, the, the wineries there were renowned for their Norton. Exactly. Well, you said it earlier, Bruce, but how was he viewed universally within the industry itself in those days here in Virginia? Dennis's kind-hearted generosity and willingness to share were matched only by his blunt frankness. <laughs> you know, freedom of speech inclu- includes the freedom to be misunderstood. Okay. I have to say that's a kind of a malady that I might have shared with Dennis. I think, indeed, at times, Dennis's sort of sarcastic wit telegraphed all the warmth, finesse, and, and suppleness of a rape whistle. <laughs> but I, but but I think he kind of enjoyed that. Um, I, I really do. One time I came into his uh, winery. Uh, I guess it was on a weekend, but it might not have been. Anyway, it was packed in there. Okay. So I go up to Dennis, and I I was just so amazed that there were so many people there. I thought there was some kind of event going on, but there wasn't. And I asked him how many employees he had working there that day. <laughs> And his response was about half. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I, but I, I do remember one instance to, to your question about how he was looked upon by other industry members. Once Dennis got a hold of a local press person, or that old local press person got a hold of Dennis anyway. Right. Uh, and Dennis declared that even God could not make a good Merlot in Virginia. A statement that I'm fully confident endured him to the Merlot producers throughout the state, as you can well imagine, (laughs) which is, I mean, and it's kind of an irony because we now do a pretty good job with Merlot. uh, But I gather at the time that um, he didn't think that we could or did. But I have to say, despite some of his uh, rhetoric, Nobody ever accused Dennis Horton of being dull. Uh, But despite that, his wines really moved this industry forward. Uh, His Horton Cellars Viognier, to my knowledge, was the only wine ever served at the very, very famous French Laundry restaurant in uh, in Napa that was from Virginia. Uh, oh, for that a long, was, long time. That, that was like his first vintage of Viognier, and it took the, the country by storm, didn't it? It did. It helped to put Virginia on the map. 
it got the attention of a lot of people. And if that was his only contribution, that would have been substantive. And that was recognized. It wasn't just recognized here because in 2020, uh, excuse me, 2002, I took a group of uh, Virginia winemakers on a technical study tour to France. And during that technical study tour, we visited Condrieu, uh, the region in France that produces Viognier. We went to George Vinay's uh, cellar. George Vinay was the premium. Yeah, uh, he was the one who saved saved it. uh, Yes, of Viognier, considered to be the dean of Viognier. And in the cellar, on the wall, was a a full-length copy, a blown-up copy, a picture of Horton Sellers' Viognier label. My God, really? A, a true testimony to Dennis Horton and his influence. Man. And, of course, we had a chance to, to chat with George, and uh, even though his English was not superb, he effervesced... Uh, a great deal of uh, positive feelings about the uh, Horton Sellers' uh, contribution to the world of Viognier. That is really amazing. Where did he get his cuttings for the Viognier? Do you know? <laughs> Interesting <Suitcase>? you ask. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually don't know where he got those cuttings, but on a trip, it might have even been the same trip, we uh, went also to um, uh, Mitterrand, the home of Tanat. There was like 18 to 20 of us on this technical study tour. They were all, all uh, commercial producers because uh, it was a technical visit. We get off the bus and Dennis, without any dialogue with anybody, including myself, the host, walks into the vineyard there and in Mitterrand and takes out a, some pruning shears and starts taking cuttings <laughs> off the vine. <laughs> the French, our, our hosts, were so astounded. I don't think they knew what to say, so they said nothing. <laughs> oh, my God. They must have just went, what is going on here, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that was uh, that was Dennis. That was Dennis who could be, like I say, uh, come on like the proverbial four miles of bad road to some, but um, he def- definitely had a kind heart. He was definitely interested in the well-being of the Virginia wine industry. And for my 30-plus years as the head of the Enology Grape Chemistry Group, I've never met a producer more generous uh, with regard to sharing what they have done and what they have learned with other members of the industry than Dennis Horton. Was um, Alan Kenny his first winemaker? I believe Alan was uh, in the first mix. I can't remember who was the first winemaker. I'm curious. I'd like the, the intersection of Alan Kenny and Dennis Horton was pretty profound. Was Dennis here in Virginia at the time? Do you recall? You mean was was I'm Alan sorry, um, Alan Kinney. I'm sorry. Was yeah, Alan? Here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Alan worked at a number of places in Virginia. 
Gotcha. Okay, so that's how they met. Yeah. And then his wife was always the vineyard manager. No. Oh, oh yes, and Dennis's, Dennis's wife. wife. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yes, 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 and a very good vineyard vineyard manager, very devoted vineyard manager. They had a sort day. of an interesting um, compartmentalization. He would never question uh, what she did in the vineyard, and uh, she was astute enough to be getting good vineyard advice. And he handled the cellar, she handled the vineyard. That's the way it was from day yeah, one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that is. And, and it was really a nice synergism have, that worked very, very well. They didn't really have any practical experience prior to that in growing grapes or making wine, did they? No, not to my knowledge, no. No, no, they did not. I'd say both of them were quick learners. One last question. I'm curious. Do you think Dennis had any idea later on, before prior to him passing away, of the impact he had both in the industry in general and for bringing Norton here to Virginia specifically? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, Dennis was, despite the fact that he was... Um, somewhat gruff with people uh, and had this uh, sarcastic wit, I think in the main, he was rather humble and he would not have suspected that he'd get any kind of real accolades. I mean, he was always uh, uh, the first person to suggest that their success was a function of Sharon, his wife, and growing good grapes. Well, Boy, well, again, I lament the fact that I never had an opportunity to meet him. He passed away before I moved to Virginia. Right, right. But I thought it was really important to capture a few stories of his as part of these recordings, which are going yeah. to go into the archives there. Yeah, you, no, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a good move. And well, it was your idea, so thank you for the suggestion, Bruce. <laughs> that was a great idea. <laughs> Well, folks, Bruce's insights about Dennis Horton should give you a quick understanding of the impact his efforts to grow and produce world-quality wine had and what it meant to the future of Virginia wine industry. Next, in this lineup, I was fortunate to interview Mike Henney, who worked for Dennis for over 20 years, from 1997 through the harvest of 2017. He had initially started as an assistant winemaker and later became the head winemaker. After the 2017 harvest, he left, and in 2019, he took the position as head of winemaking and production at Michael Schaap's Wine Works. Mike will also give you an insider's view of what it was like during those several decades he worked with Dennis. Take a listen to Mike, describe Dennis and their long relationship. So Mike, welcome to the podcast again. Hey, uh, good, good afternoon, everyone. Good to be here, Fred. So let me start here and ask you, when and how did you meet Dennis Horton? I'd say before, uh, maybe well before meeting Dennis Horton in person, I was uh, first introduced to Dennis's wines um, at a wine shop in D.C., Calvert Woodley. And um, maybe just to set the stage here, so this would have been in, in the mid-90s, 95 or so. So, you know, we kind of back back up to 1995 in Virginia. Uh, we, we had been you know, ma- ma- making, making wine again. There was another phase that had started in the late 60s and the early 70s. But, you know, in mid-90s in Virginia, you know, folks were certainly making wine, but there was 
no Veritas. There was no King Family Vineyards, no Early Mountain. There was a pre-Octagon Barbersville uh, days, Albert Woodley, well-renowned wine shop in D.C., uh, we, we, we had, uh, n- n- naked mountain Chardonnay, uh, on the shelf because people like to order cases of it on the holiday. And that was it for Virginia wine. At wow. The time. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. So then Horton. So the, the wine man- manager, uh, t- t- Tom knew he, he knew I had a strong interest in, in Virginia wine. And, uh, uh, one, one day he brought in a couple bottles. There was, uh, Horton Viognier, Horton Cabernet Franc, and Horton Norton. He's like, these are good. You should try them. And when um, you know they were talking about something being good, of uh, having the greatest wines from all over the world, if they said they were good, I should try them. That got my attention. So yeah. So then, what year did you actually meet Devin? So from there, um, tasted the wines. They were, you know, they were pretty impressive. The uh, I'd say in retrospect, the 93 Horton Viognier really put Virginia wine on the international map for the first time. Uh, 93 Cabernet Franc was, um, the first varietal of bottling of Cabernet Franc at the time. So yeah, yeah, I got, I got really interested. I'd wanted to get back into the production end of things. Chris Pierman worked for, um, Naked Mountain at the time. I got, got to chatting with him. He put me in touch with Alan Kinney, who was uh, Dennis's consultant at the time. I took uh, Alan out to lunch in uh, the the Plains uh, and kind of, kind of talked to him. There was a opportunity to, to work for uh, Horton, so I, I was kind of, kind of kind of getting closer and closer and sent my uh, re- resume in. But before actually meeting Hort, uh, Dennis, I saw him from afar. It was every year there was a big wine festival at, at, at the Plains where everyone would go to, and I saw this like red-faced, you know, Irish <laughs> ball of energy that I knew, like, oh, that's Dennis Horton. And to, to me, it looked like, okay, this has got to be like the, the Bobby Knight of Virginia wine, just, you know, sort of great, great intensity. Soon, soon after that, I uh, in, 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 interviewed with Dennis and uh, got, got, got the job as the uh, assistant winemaker at Horton Vineyards uh, starting in 1997. How many years did you work uh, at Horton? Uh, I, I worked uh, at Horton from 97 through 2017, so uh, tw- 20 years. 20 years? 20 wow. Years, yeah. Yeah. Then you saw a lot of Dennis. And what was, so describe his approach to wine growing as best you can. You know, you know, Dennis was really on a search in the early 90s to find grapes uh, appropriate for kind of the, the wet, humid Mediterranean climate that we have here. So... You know, kind of going going into it, there was standard vinifera hybrids, but yeah, you really took a great risk planting grapes that had uh, not been planted or not been planted commercially in Virginia before, and grape varieties like uh, Viognier, Cabernet Franc, Tanat, Petit Verdot, Petit Mansang, Albarino that we you know think of as part of the. Uh, Virginia land, landscape these days were first introduced commercially by by, by Dennis, and uh, there was maybe even a longer list of things that he tried that didn't work out. But what an Im- important time in Virginia wine! Yeah. What was the story behind? Did you ever get it out of him directly? Let's say about why and how he brought Norton back to the state of Virginia. 
Yeah, so um, I mean, the, the the Norton story and De- Dennis are so tightly woven. Um, and Dennis grew up in Herman, Missouri, which um, uh, Norton, of course, uh, originated in Virginia, but Civil War and Prohibition were kind of the one-two punch that kind of made it extinct in Virginia. But a quarter-acre plot uh, survived in Her- Herman, Missouri. And De- De- Dennis, uh, as, as well as his wife, Sharon, they grew up, both grew up in Herman, Missouri. Dennis used to play uh, as a kid in uh, the, the, the caves of the defunct Stonehill uh, cellar. Uh, so he came back to Virginia um, and established his vineyard in addition to some of the vinifera we've been talking about. As Dennis would say, Norton was a, a no-brainer. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So what was the biggest influence you would say he had on you? Yeah, so I'd say the, the biggest influence he had on me was working hard. Um, and, you know, there's so many various obstacles that can get in the way of making a good bottle of wine in Virginia and just staying focused on getting a good good bottle, of, a good, good product in, in, into the bottle, you know, just, despite the many obstacles of, you know, weather, finances, staff, on, on, on and on. So, yeah, 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 getting a good bottle, of, uh, good, good, good glass of wine in, in, into the bottle and um, letting it reflect where it was grown. Hmm. So, from your vantage point, and you saw him for quite some time, how was he viewed within the Virginia wine industry? Dennis was viewed, I'd say, as as a pioneer and a maverick and an iconoclast. So, a maverick, eh? <laughs> yeah, maverick for sure. So uh, he would strongly speak his mind and, and a- advocate for what he wanted. Um, for sure was uh, be described as a hard-ass negotiator. Okay. <laughs> um, but also fit, fit, fair. So, you know, he, he would argue and argue and argue his point, but he would stick to his words. So I think, I think pe- people value that in him for sure. Did he also open his cellars, if you will, to other winemakers who weren't necessarily making wines from the varietals he was growing and saying, hey, look at this or look at that? Absolutely. So, so, so many examples like that. So, yeah, De- Dennis was a o- open book for what, what worked and what, what didn't work with us. And he, th- he thought... Um, Secrets were stupid. Secrets held us back. So he was very sharing, and he he was also really interested in not not just trying new grapes or growing techniques in in the vineyard, but he was equally supportive of experimentation in in, in the cellar. We did the first uh, micro oxygenation system in the state, like hmm. in two two thousand. Yeah, we got the first cross flow system. He, yeah, he was very interested and supportive of his staff to explore whatever techniques would make the wine better. And you know, if we convinced him that something was worth taking a look at, he'd invest the money. So yeah, he'd spend 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 the money and bring it in and see if see if it improved. The wine. I've heard this before from other folks. Was there? A real division there within the organization, which is to say that his wife, Sharon, was the vineyard and he, Dennis, was the winemaking side. I mean, did they keep that firewall in there most of the time? 
Well, um, so Sharon, Sharon for sure was was a vineyard. Uh, Dennis's business partner Joan was was great at running the business side of things. De- Dennis was a great bridge, kind of bringing everyone together. And he, yeah, he was su- super interested in new the the vineyard was the most important thing that you know if we weren't getting good grapes, then it was all downhill from there. And yeah, yeah, and he was re- really interested in kind of t- t- tasting and different techniques. So he was kind of the umbrella that brought these different pieces together in, in a fluid way. So I'm curious, you talked about him openly speaking his mind and he was a maverick, but was he a good public speaker? You know, he, he'd get this kind of twink, twinkle in his eye and he'd love to tell a good story. And and yeah, yeah he, he, he could get a thousand people in a room quiet and listening to him in, in, in a few minutes for sure. Really? Yeah. Oh man, that must have been fascinating to to watch and experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Do you think he had any idea later, if not earlier in his career of wine growing, the impact he had made on the industry by bringing the Norton grape back to Virginia, or was it just sort of this thing that he did and he got weird looks about it or something? Yeah. Well, well um, no topic is more divisive in Virginia wine than, than uh, Norton. So uh, kind, kind of like Pinotage in South Africa, it really divides the industry between uh, the, those those who love it and those who think it's an aberration of nature. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm on the lo- love it end of the spectrum. It's, Me it's, too. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's the, the only thing we should be growing in Virginia for sure. And, you know, I think with Dennis's ma- Maverick part, so, you know, what 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 he he cared about is that there were four thousand customers each year who'd be buying a case of, of Norton and, and really enjoying it. So for 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 him, that's where the ultimate satisfaction was. Um, yeah, interesting. I mean, his legacy lives on as a result of that. You for sure. Think. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think as many people understand what you said earlier in this interview, the impact his Viognier had. When when. Uh, story that Dennis really enjoyed with uh, uh, Norton was um, as as some uh, some other people were trying uh, uh, grapes that had been successful for uh, D- D- Dennis, uh, Jim and Deborah Vasek down around um, R- R- Roanoke uh, had really cool wine winery Valhalla and uh, they, they planted Norton and Dennis just always loved the story when the customer came in and said, uh, do, do you mind if I try your Horton? <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so yeah the horton norton moniker right yeah who, who can be that yeah well obviously he brought viognier here he pioneered a lot of different varietals what do you think he would think of this bottle of chablis we're here enjoying right now well um Den- Den- dennis um yeah had um some strong op- opinions on things and I think um, since Chablis, last I heard, is made from Chardonnay, and <laughs> De- Dennis was uh, maybe kind of looking to go beyond Chardonnay in Virginia. So I, you know, I think Chardonnay is a quite, quite, quite here in Virginia wine. I love what we're doing with Chardonnay, but uh, De- Dennis wasn't uh, super interested in Chardonnays. Interesting. <laughs> so he was really much at at the core beyond his passion for wine growing he was a businessman oh for, for sure for sure so yeah so it, it was important for him for virginia wine to be 
like of, of course of course he he went he went Hort Horton to succeed but just as important for him was for Virginia to su- succeed as an industry and stand on its own two feet and that uh, ha- had to make money at the end of the day so his his goal was to get a really high quality of bottle of wine on on, on the shelf at a price that pe- people could could afford and that through the process of making it, that uh, the, the the winery made, made money. So, well, you told me a couple great little stories there. One last one. If you if you had one last story you would tell about Dennis Horton, what was it? One thing I I, I, learned, I learned at Horton was um, so so Dennis was very very, very driven, and uh, when things went 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 wrong, you would see. Uh, uh, angry side of Dennis. So uh, I, I learned early on that when we were getting chewed out, never to stand in the middle. Because if you stood in the middle, you got all the eye contact, <laughs> even if you hadn't done anything. <laughs> but I think I think my, my favorite story is one one time he, he he was just telling me about chewing out someone, and and he went into character, and then I felt like I was getting chewed out, and it was just a story. <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, man, I almost could see that. That's pretty cool. Well, hey, thank you, Mike. This is fun. Again, I'm jealous that I never got a chance to meet him. I would have loved to interact. I like tough characters in the wine business. They're my bread and butter, if you will. And it would have been fun to know him and exchange and share wine and stories. Awesome. Well, um, I'm glad, glad, glad you got, got, got to learn some of it, his, his le, 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 legacy people hung out with him. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Well, those two interviews with Bruce Socklin and Mike Henney I found to be very intriguing. They only increased my curiosity to learn more about Dennis Horton and his impact on the Virginia wine industry during his time here in the Old Dominion. In part two of this episode... I will gain further insights and stories about Dennis Horton from three different wine personalities. I start with Jenny McLeod, the owner and founder of Chrysalis Vineyard, who was inspired by Dennis and as a result planted the largest Norton vineyard in the world. Next, I speak with Luca Paschina from Barbersville Vineyards. Luca has an interesting viewpoint on Dennis. And I followed up with Lucy Morton, world's foremost known amphilographer and a Virginian through and through, who although never working directly with Dennis, knew him and their paths would cross on several occasions. And she shares some interesting stories for sure. These three personalities round out the story, as best I can tell it, of the contribution that Dennis made to the Virginia wine community. In my opinion, Dennis was a very significant wine grower who, Without his influence, the direction and shape of the Virginia wine growing might have taken many more years to get to where we are today. The industry has a lot to thank Dennis for. So thank you for being a listener. Stay tuned for the next episode coming up here. And appreciate any comments you have. Send them to me at fred at finewineconfidential.com. See you on the other side.
Music at Fine Wine Confidential Podcast by Jason Shaw at Audionautics.com from his copyrighted song, Acoustic Shuffle, under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. I hope you enjoyed the show.